Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. This week we've seen major bushfires plague New South Wales, New Zealand and California. And we've seen the UK request yet another extension for the Brexit deal. But as always, we're going to be giving you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. First up, we have Dr. Mehmet Ozap director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University. He joins us to talk about the latest developments in Syria and what they mean for the future of the war-torn country. After that, we have a story from our very own Backchat reporter, Olivia Stanley. It's about where we are with LGBTQI plus rights almost two years on from the postal vote. And finally, we'll be speaking to academic and researcher Dr. Rachel Bergen about the issues in the proposed changes to New South Wales consent laws. A quick warning, we will be mentioning rape and sexual assault in the segment. Stay tuned. We are going to our first interview straight after this. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. A five-day ceasefire negotiated by the U.S. and Turkey ended last week, and it seems that in the face of worldwide condemnation, Turkey is likely to stay in Syria for some time yet. And now there's been another backflip from Donald Trump, with the U.S. forces remaining in the war-torn country to protect oil fields from Islamic State. We have Dr. Mehmet Ozap, director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University, to explain the situation to us. Hi there, Dr. Ozap. Uh, good morning. Thanks good. for having me. Our pleasure. So can you give us a rundown of the most recent developments in Syria? Well, the most important uh, aspect of the whole Syrian saga is that Turkey now seems to be well settled in the northeast of the country as it was planning, uh, as it planned uh, in a surprise um, move to, to its military forces into the country. Um, and uh, it seems that U.S., Russia, and all the players have accepted that eventuality. And they are, now there is a 30-kilometer deep, 450-kilometer uh, wide corridor that's controlled by Turkey. So who are the main players in the region at the moment? Who's fighting who? Can you break it down for us? Well, in the whole Syrian issue, uh, there was first the geopolitical players, which was United States and Russia. Uh, from uh, And then you've got regional players like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran. Uh, and then within the uh, within Syria, at the third level, you have local players like President Bashar Assad and all other myriad of uh, opposition forces, including ISIS. Now, when you break down those three layers uh, at the geopolitical lev- uh, level, uh, uh, we now know that the United States, States is out and their interest in Syria is reduced to looking after some oil fields. Whereas the uh, United States has always been very tentative uh, when it came to uh, Syria. It, it never had a solid policy. Uh, uh, it did have some presence. It trained some insurgent groups. Uh, but we, we never knew what the United States wanted uh, in Syria, whereas Russia was extremely clear. Uh, from the beginning, and especially from 2015 onwards, 
its its main goal was to uh, keep President Bashar Assad in power, uh, and uh, and therefore uh, its own presence within Syria and access to Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, and Russia has been very uh, uh, upfront about this uh, and protected the regime in Syria from uh, from 2015 onwards. And it seems that now they've been successful. Uh, that uh, Syria is largely under the control of now President Bashar Assad. So what's Turkey's interest in the country, and are they likely to remain in Syria? Uh, my contention is that the, Turkey will stay in Syria for a long time. And the reason is that, the, uh, well, the, there are three main reasons why President uh, Erdogan of Turkey uh, wanted to go into Syria. And the, the firstly, uh, there is a a very large uh, Syrian refugees, 3.6 million uh, in Syria. It's become a main internal political issue. Uh, people have lost patience, and especially the half a million uh, ref- Syrian refugees in Istanbul alone. Uh, and, uh, and President Erdogan lost the election in June this year. He lost Istanbul, which is the most important city, uh, over this issue. And uh, so now what he wants is that he wants to move a large chunk of the Syrian refugees into northeastern Syria. Uh, and uh, with that also, he wants to, secondly, he wants to change the demographics of the region uh, of that area so that it's not dominated by Kurds. There are Arab ethnic uh, Syrians as well in that area so that uh, a, an autonomous Kurdish region cannot be, should not be established. And thirdly, Turkey has this existential fear that uh, its own Kurdish populations and regions would one day want autonomy and separation. Um, there are 10 million Kurds in Turkey, and most of them are located in southeastern region bordering Syria and northern Iraq. And northern Iraq is now almost independent, uh, a Kurdish region. Uh, Turkey was thinking that if that happens in uh, northeastern Syria as well, it's only a matter of time until its own uh, Kurdish regions also seek autonomy. So uh, they want to prevent uh, this. So basically, it's an internal election issue for to President Erdogan and, uh, and also an ex- existential fear that they, they have. And now the election for the uh, president in Turkey will be 2023. So I'm, I'm uh, estimating that uh, Erdogan will be in Syria by until... Uh, that date, and then perhaps beyond. Uh, uh, and he wants to be a player in Syrian uh, affairs uh, and in the post-civil war reconstruction and rebuilding he, he, until he makes sure there is no autonomous Kurdish region. So just to add another layer to it all, tensions are rising in Lebanon right now. Uh, there are anti-corruption protests, uh, protests against Hezbollah and their stronghold of the government. Uh, even last Tuesday, the prime minister of Lebanon resigned. So how have these developments affected the politics of the Middle East region? Well, same thing is happening in Iraq. There are, there's, been, uh, there's been a lot of protests uh, that's largely been unnoticed. Um, so what really happened was it's after 9-11, and especially U- U.S. invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003, the whole region has been destabilized, which culminated in the uh, Arab Spring in 2011, a popular movement. 
Basically, people, like Muslim people, are fed up in the Middle East, fed up of invasions, outside interference, uh, inept and corrupt governments that siphon off the valuable resources of these countries uh, for their own interests. They're just fed up with that. They really want democracy. Like uh, Middle Eastern people would love to have stable democracy where leaders are put to account and the resources of the country are used to provide services for people. So they don't want violence. They don't want uh, invasions. They want stability like every, everyone else. So we're seeing a reflection of that in Lebanon. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Sweta Das and Shami Sivasubramanian. We're speaking to Dr. Mehmet Ozalp, Director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization, about the most recent developments in Syria and what they mean for the country moving forward. So, Dr. Ozalp, the conflict in Syria has been going on for eight years. It honestly feels like it's been going on for much longer. How did it all start? Well, it started with the 2011 Arab Spring, which started in Tunisia, then moved to Egypt. Basically, its main aim was to topple these long-standing dictators. Uh, and in Syria, uh, President Bashar Assad was put in power by his father, who's been in power for 20 years. In 2002, he came into power. So it looked like he was going to be another long-standing dictator uh, for, for a long time. So people wanted democracy. They wanted him to step down. Uh, and there were street protests. And, uh, and then we still don't know how violence erupted. It, it seems that it was convenient for President Bashar Assad that the protesters would show some violence so that it had the then excuse of uh, really cracking down on these street protests, which were getting out of hand. Um, and then that uh, kick-started the... Uh, the certain groups retaliated, uh, and they started to, they decided to basically bring him down through rebellion. Um, and, uh, and this is, there was a period of about six months that could, uh, that could have been really utilized by the international community, uh, to prevent a civil war in Syria. But unfortunately, uh, there was no, uh, steps taken. So basically, it just, uh, things spiraled out of hand. Uh, and uh, and rebellion started, and therefore the civil war. Mm. Um, and uh, like initially, there were up to about 200 groups in Syria, uh, insurgent groups, different cities just spontaneously uh, brought together. And then uh, the, some of these were then coalesced into larger groups uh, when the regional players like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, supported certain groups over the other, they became stronger, and uh, and then uh, that's what erupted. Uh, the violence has then became an all-out civil war. Mm. But what we have now on the ground is that uh, the president Bashar Assad, with the help of Russia, has defeated just about all insurgent groups, uh, and uh, they the remnants have been gathering in the province of Idlib, which is the northwest of Syria. It, it's kind of a convenient place mm. if everyone ga- gathers in one place and then there is a one final assault there and then President Bashar Assad has uh, ultimate control in the country. Uh, and it seems that Turkey was, uh, was uh, 
sponsoring the insurgent groups in Idlib. Now, I, I think that, that there is a bit of an agreement that's taking place where Turkey is going to remove its spon- sponsorship in Idlib uh, in return for uh, Bashar Assad being uh, accepting Turkish presence in, in northeastern Syria. So basically, once Idlib is captured by President Bashar Assad, the, the, he will be the only uh, power in Syria. We are really we're going back to square one. That is the unfortunate thing about this whole uh, saga. And uh, there's been six million people displaced, you know, almost one million people dead, all that for nothing. Are we likely to see an end to this conflict in the foreseeable future? I am predicting that in 2020 it will end. Uh, um, as I said, the main thing is the capturing of Idlib. So that's what we need to watch out for now. Next year? In, uh, uh, yes, that's what I'm sort of estimating. Uh, or obviously, I'm sort of, it's based on the analysis of my, uh, what's happening in the, in the country. So basically, IS is, ISIS is gone. So northeastern Syria, Turkey is not going to do any military activity. They just want to control the area. Uh, and uh, prevent a Kurdish autonomous region. So the only place where, of, where violence is left is Idlib. And, uh, and, and I, I am sure, almost certain, that President Bashar Assad will capture the, the city. It, it will be a bloody war, uh, but once the opposition there is defeated, and that will be the end of the war. But I, 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 I'm predicting that that will come in 2020. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Dr. Azalp. Thank you. That was Dr. Mehmet Azalp, Director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization, speaking to us about the war in Syria and what it means for the future of the country. As always, we want to hear from you guys. Text us your questions and comments on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at FBI. The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Back chat, your alternative to talk back. So we are two years on from the same-sex marriage laws being passed, but how has this changed the way LGBTQI plus people are being treated in Australia? Has it changed existing prejudices at all? Especially... In areas like the church and in the eyes of the law, the community still hasn't achieved equal rights and treatment in society. We have a story from our very own Backchat reporter, Olivia Stanley. He looks at the treatment of LGBTQI plus people in the church uh, a couple of years from the postal vote. Here's Olivia. What a day for love, for equality, for respect. Australia has done it. For most Australians, this was a moment of closure. Same-sex marriage had been legalised and the debate settled. But LGBTQI Christians were caught in the crossfire of a vote that polarised the nation. Two years on, the community hasn't forgotten. It was definitely one of the worst times of my life. The entire Australian queer community, I think, was very traumatised by that event. That's Jocelyn, a 22-year-old queer-identifying Christian. She says that although the yes vote won the plebiscite, it hasn't brought the progress she'd hoped to see. I'm not sure if things have changed that much. I think everyone's kind of just settled down. But I think, you know, straight Christians are still trying to find um, new ways to kind of maybe attack 
um, queer people in different ways. She says homophobia within the church means it's still often a hostile place. When asked if queer Christians were afraid to come out... I think that's definitely the case. Like, I'm definitely afraid to come out at church still. Like, I'm sure there's tons of us around, but I think, you know, we're all just kind of under wraps. In a recent speech, Archbishop of the notoriously conservative Sydney Anglican Diocese, Glenn Davies, told supporters of same-sex marriage within the church to please leave. He later clarified he was referring to bishops, not the LGBT groups and supporters although his was one of the many Christian churches to campaign actively for the no vote during the postal survey, arguing religious freedoms would be eroded. The diocese even donated a million dollars to the Coalition for Marriage's no lobby, and Davies took to the internet to personally call for Anglicans to vote no. Marriage, after all, is God's idea. It's God's good design for all people, not just for Christians, but for our society as a whole. I shall be voting no. I urge you to do the same. The move attracted criticism from inside and outside the organisation, amid accusations of hate speech, bigotry and bullying from both sides. Associate Professor Andrew Singleton, a leading sociologist of religion from Deakin University, says the position was polarising. There is no doubt that the Sydney Anglican Diocese stance on um, marriage equality That was quite repellent to a large proportion of teenagers in Australia. But 81% of all teenagers support marriage equality. He says the stance alienated many young people. 50% of all teenagers said uh, religious people are often too intolerant of others. For them, it's a matter of conviction. It's about, you know, saying this is what we stand for. This is what we think about what society should do, but that's kind of swimming against the tide of um, what young people think in the main. Jocelyn says homophobia like this often masquerades as religious opinion. I think it's unfortunately just way too common. Like even as I as I mentioned before, Israel Folau and he's he's all just like, oh, you know, it's freedom of speech. Uh, you know, I, I'm allowed to say this because my faith says it's right. But she believes the stance taken by the diocese was one-sided and didn't reflect the majority opinion. That was just, I don't know, it was like really horrible to read. It's just kind of like, oh, you, you absolutely don't care about people who are queer at all, like even within the churches. Um, I think I saw a lot of debate at the time um, from people who were like, you know, they're like, you know, I'm a queer Anglican. I'm really upset to see this. Queer believers may often move between churches and denominations in their search for acceptance, out or not. Reverend Dale Yardy is the openly gay pastor of Metropolitan Community Church, Sydney, a queer-affirming church that's become somewhat of a refuge. One of the things, the greatest learnings I've, I've found in my first year here has been to see firsthand on the front lines the damage homophobia in the church uh, around Australia has done to people. People come here sometimes, you know, decades after um, they've gone through abuse in, in churches um, that have been systemic and have been horrendous. And uh, so much of uh, my pastoral care is, um, you know, working with mental health and, and, and helping people um, 
undo some of the yeah, incredibly damaging uh, kinds of uh, processes um, that they've been through. A study found that in the months following the postal survey, verbal and physical assaults on LGBTQI people more than doubled, and the community experienced increased stress, anxiety and depression. Reverend Yardi again. Just the, the anguish that they go through, just in terms of just trying to exist. And, you know, we so often take for granted sort of relationships um, without all these exterior forces that are, you know, ripping them apart before they can actually thrive themselves. As a first-generation migrant from Hong Kong, Jocelyn faced opposition at home as well as at church. So, like, my parents were quite conservative, or they still are. Like, I was brought up in a very conservative way. So, like, I grew up thinking that, oh, you know, being gay is wrong and all that. Like, I do have to say, like, it wasn't easy going through that at first because, you know, like, when I realised that I was queer, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is horrible. Like, the world is ending. And it took, like, quite a long time to kind of unlearn all that um, and realise that um, having a Christian faith and also being, like, queer wasn't, you know, like, a horrible thing that couldn't go together. Despite everything, she's optimistic about the future. The next generation, like, people my age, they've been way more accepting of um, queerness and stuff. I think a lot of young people are asking more questions now as well, and I think that's always kind of the... You know, that's the first step to um, getting rid of old misconceptions and trying to embrace people's humanity. And I've also seen just kind of way more queer Christians around as well. And I think that's also really encouraging. You know, it used to kind of just be me and then everyone everyone else who was queer I knew was like, um, was also like, you know, gay, lesbian, bi kind of thing. But then I'm also seeing more trans Christians around. I think that's also really cool to see. That was Backchat reporter Olivia Stanley with a story examining the lives of LGBTQI plus people and their place in the church. Don't go anywhere because we've got our final interview with Dr. Rachel Bergen about proposed changes to New South Wales consent laws. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. A heads up, this segment will mention rape and sexual assault. Now, draft proposals to change the New South Wales consent laws were submitted this week. They clarify that sexual consent hasn't been given if a person freezes or doesn't give any direct verbal indication of consent. The proposals have been much anticipated, but many experts say that they're still not strong enough. Academic and researcher Dr. Rachel Bergen specialises in sexual assault law in Victoria, and she was one of more than 50 stakeholders that made submissions to the Law Reform Commission. She's here to talk to us about that draft proposal. Hi, Dr. Bergen. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. So glad that you're here with us. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us what prompted these changes? So the reforms really came about uh, as a result of a controversial outcome in the Lazarus case. So this is a case where Luke Lazarus was initially found guilty by a jury of sexual assault and then later acquitted by a judge in a second trial. The survivor at the centre of that case, Saxon Mullins, has been a really strong advocate for a positive consent standard and she was really quite key in prompting the review. Uh, but specifically, most of that concern was around the mental element of sexual assault, so that um, that fault-finding uh, fault element. So in New South Wales, currently, 
consent is defined as a person consents to sexual activity if they freely and voluntarily agree to that activity. But the accused is only found guilty if they knew about that. So either through actually knowing, uh, being reckless to consent, or having no reasonable grounds for believing in consent. And it's that reasonable grounds element that has been most controversial. And so what will the draft proposal change? Well, the draft proposals do quite a few things. So firstly, they split the definition of consent into multiple sections, and that's trying to clarify and simplify the law. So it's more, more easy for um, the juries to apply. Um, there's actually not a lot of change around that mental element, that knowledge component, which is that controversial part. So that reasonable grounds test, although we've lost that, that terminology, we're still basing that, that element around reasonableness and circumstances. Um, so the aim is really to get juries to think about the situation a bit more holistically uh, as opposed to just looking at specific individual grounds. It's more about how the circumstances broadly are reasonable, but there's still some concerns that, that come up with the, with the proposals. So, Dr. Bergen, do you believe the proposed changes are strong enough to help protect potential survivors of rape and sexual assault? Sure. In, in, in a word, no. They, they don't go far enough. The ch- proposed changes don't instill a positive consent standard into law. And that's because there is no um, positive obligation on a person to actively seek consent from another person. So a person seeking sex with another person does not need to satisfy themselves or, you know, take active steps to ensure that the other person is consenting. So that is a really key part of legislating a positive or affirmative consent standard, but it is missing from this draft proposals. So what can be done to strengthen these amendments? Is it just including that um, wording? I think what we need across Australia is is mandate steps. Um, that's what Tasmania has tried to do. Um, although there, there also is not a lot of evidence about how this is actually functioning in practice. Um, and that's why Victoria is often looked at as a really great example. But Victoria is experiencing some of these same issues that New South Wales is. And, and there's not a lot of knowledge and understanding about how these changes function in, in practice. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with academic and researcher Dr. Rachel Bergen about the new proposal to change the New South Wales consent laws. Okay, Dr. Bergen, what does a positive consent model look like and how can something like this be enforced? Well, a positive model of consent is about active and ongoing consent by all parties to a sexual act. Uh, it's something that is as I said, an ongoing process. So it's not something that is just a tick box or sign a contract, as they say. It's actually something that we constantly negotiate throughout the entire sexual experience. So that that element of taking active steps is really key in legislating an affirmative consent or a positive consent standard. Um, but, but that is what is missing, and that's the biggest concern about these draft proposals. Do you think there needs to be a cultural change alongside legal reform? Certainly. I think, you know, when we're talking about law reform, we're talking about the worst case scenarios. We're talking about where there's things gone really wrong. Um, but consent is actually relevant to our everyday lives and everyday interactions um, with people, uh, particularly sexual interactions. And we need to encourage people to take, take initiative to have those conversations. And that's through sex education, sort of addressing those taboos around talking about sex. 
Um, and we need to arm young people in particular with some of this language to be able to have conversations, not just when they're having sex, but around sex more broadly. So at this point, it's only a draft proposal. And now the New South Wales Law Reform Commission is accepting another round of submissions. So what's next for the process? It's a really interesting process. And and the Commission have done really well to engage with the community and stakeholders. So that's something to be um, celebrated. So they're accepting another third round of of submissions, um, which actually closed quite soon. So not a a long time to to think about these proposals, really. Um, But what will happen is they'll accept those submissions, they'll review, hopefully they'll take on board any comments that come through, and then they'll release their final recommendations. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Dr Bergen. Thank you. That was academic and researcher Dr. Rachel Bergen talking to us about the potential flaws in the new proposal to change New South Wales consent laws. Well, that's all we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Dr. Mehmet Ozap and Dr. Rachel Bergen. And a huge thanks to our wonderful reporter, Olivia Stanley. We'll catch you all next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song from Kanye West's new album. It's called Jesus is King. That's right yes here is follow god featuring uh not featuring um featuring kanye Kanye west he's just a small cameo (laughs) i'll see you all next week